You're listening to Between Two Ravens, a Norse mythology podcast with Sean and David. Hey, Sean, how's it going? David, I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's nice we're doing a uh, early morning, early morning recording here. Clearly, that we're yeah. very busy professional people that don't have time during the week, and now we're yeah. uh, drinking coffee, talking Norse mythology. I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking a. Uh, uh, my drink of the week is a strawberry serenity uh, synergy raw kombucha. How much? How much alcohol in there? Uh, I don't know. I think it's like I think kombucha is typically like point two percent. I could be wrong, yeah, but I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could have added like vodka to it, but it's no. too early in the morning. It's ten o'clock just, here, so I'm just, I'm just making the joke. Yeah, there's probably like less than half a percent in there. Yeah. That, uh, so David, oh, I'm sorry. Good. Sounds like a healthy thing. You're taking care of yourself with some uh, drinking kombucha. Yeah. Well, right after this, uh, we're going over to our friend's house to meet their uh, their new baby. Um, we're mm-hmm. also going to like watch the soccer game, and uh, they they just like texted us and said, "Hey, can you pick up mimosa stuff?" So it's going to be shortly after this where I get started. Nice, nice. Oh, that's good. That yeah, that's the thing I've been uh, thinking about a lot is kind of work life balance and things like that, and how we make time for all the all the important things. I just keep reminding <laughs> myself of that constantly, so I'll actually do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, David, we we got to see each other for the first time in probably like what five or six years. In like five years? No, it was great to see you in person. It was yeah, it goes again. Never enough time, but uh, yeah, now that I get to talk to you guys more by you know video and uh, things like that, it's just a few minutes rushing around when I get back in person. Hopefully yeah, more this year though. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we. And I, I feel bad because um, when I did come over to a uh, Chuck's house where we were all meeting, first of all, it was like right after work, and I was on a deadline, so I had to. I had my laptop there and I was actually working. And then I think Chuck's cat um, kind of messed with my allergies. So like I had to leave, but it was a, it was a very quick and I wasn't at my best. So I apologize, David. No, Joe, Joey too. His allergies were killing him. Yeah. yeah. But so but, what's, uh, up, what's up with you? That Well, besides the, the travel and things like that, I've been watching uh, Thor Love and Thunder. I just finished that last night, actually. It's a really good movie. I liked it. Yeah. I'm making a point to uh, watch some Disney plus uh, Marvel movies. So just, and this is what I'm going to assume here. I'm going to assume that you did not watch all the Marvel movies from start to finish. You just started with Thor Love and Thunder because of the podcast and you probably missed out on a lot of his, uh, his story arc or. No, but, but I had kept up on a, there, there's somewhere I dropped off on the Marvel movies. So I had seen, I want to say the first two Thor movies, at least the first one. And then uh, I'd seen th- this one picked up off the guardians of the galaxy. And I think I had seen that one. So I, I need to go look at the whole Wikipedia page and see where exactly I dropped off. But I'm uh kind of getting back on track i think yeah but no it's it's funny because like beth and i started uh we we saw it in theaters like a few months ago and we we actually watched the first half um yesterday and it's like i i, I don't think it's the best marvel movie out there like I, I definitely thought thor ragnarok was much better but i i enjoy it like i think uh i love chris hemsworth and uh you know I, yeah. thor's my favorite um marvel character so oh yeah that i really took a lot of notes on it as like you know, interpreting it like a myth and uh, probably not time for it today, but maybe that'll have to be a special little short episode. We'll do. Yeah, not definitely. I think, I think I made this joke previously that we'll have to, that I'm sure we're, it's inevitable that we're going to get into the Marvel myth and talk about like how it's wrong. And we're going to be like, yeah, actually that's not the actual story. And we're going to come off as like pompous assholes, but no, that I think it's a good modern interpretation on it. It kind of picks up where the, where the actual myths left off and it's a reasonable place to take the myth. So yeah. I mean, except that Thor's, as, we're, as we'll talk about today, the Thor, Thor's alive in that storyline, and he's not alive in this storyline. Uh, yeah, <laughs> spoilers. Yeah, we're going to get to that, um, but we can go ahead and get started if you want to. Yeah, let's go for it. Nice. All right, so we're, today's going to be our um, our second episode on our Ragnarok series. This one is going to be discussing specifically the battle on the plains of Vigrid. 
so last week we discussed, or I guess a couple weeks ago, we discussed the events that foretold the imminent start of Ragnarok. Last season, we set the stage of stories of the gods that led to these events, such as Fenrir being chained up, Loki orchestrating the death of Odin's son, Baldur, him also drunkenly insulting all of the gods at Aegir's feast, only for the ACO to then track down and capture Loki, chaining him up to where he is consistently on the receiving end of a painful snake's venom up until Ragnarok. Then in our first can't, episode, can't on... forget that his uh, can't forget that his wife is sitting there with a bowl trying to keep the snake venom from hitting his face. But uh, oh yeah, Sigin has the bowl, and she's yeah, Sigin is uh, is holding the bowl to prevent the the poison from hitting his face. However, when she has to like pour the bowl out, then he does get hit with it. So yeah, that's what interesting kind of. Uh, kind of Sisyphus-like task, like rolling the boulder up the hill, but rather hold the bowl of poison so it doesn't go in your husband's eyes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So in our first episode on this series, uh, we found out that the world will eventually experience an extreme winter so bad that the sun will be of no use. The sun would then also be consumed by the wolf Skull anyway. Then the wolf Hati Hradvitsin will then catch the moon as well. It will also be an age of war, where the bonds of kinship will break, with brothers killing each other for the sake of greed. The mountains and earth will shake, along with the world tree Yggdrasil, and all of the gods and men are not going to be without fear. And at this point, uh, when we discussed the omens of Ragnarok, David um, talked a little bit about the similarities of uh, from the similarities of this story with revelations from the Holy Bible. And so, in, that, in that episode, I didn't... I focused a lot on that, you know, just the interesting parallels I saw. And it just it was my first time really exploring the book of Revelations. As I've talked to a few people since then, they're like, yeah, I've never read book of Revelations either. I'm like, you got to read your Bible. You got to go read the book of Revelations because it's the most fun chapter in the whole thing. But, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people that even like um, are devout Catholics, based on what you told me about Revelations, I think you said that Jesus Christ is going to be like 50 feet tall and have like a sword hanging out of his mouth sword, or something. A sword coming out of his mouth. Yeah, like he's spitting fire, but it's a sword. And uh, I love that image, man. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but yeah, I, I could try. But but uh, in a moment, I'll talk about some, some of just like kind of the interpretations of all the images that are showing up in Ragnarok here in the, in the previous episodes, some things I probably should have uh, kind of just getting everybody, you know, if you haven't listen to every single episode of our podcast. There are things I've mentioned before, but I'm sure I should go back to. So. Awesome. So at this point, when Ragnarok is approaching, like we, we had all these, um, these catastrophes and like the, the society, I guess the, uh, the bonds of society are breaking, but the bonds, like actual physical bonds also break at this point, including Fenrir's and Loki's. Again, they are chained up. The armies of Ragnarok then will assemble, including the Midgard, Serp- Midgard serpent Jormungandr, the ship Nagelfar, which is made from the Nails of Dead Men, that's going to be approaching with the Frost Giants, captained by the giant Hrim. The wolf Fenrir, with flames shooting out of his eyes and nostrils. The fire giant Surtur, along with the Sons of Muspel, so you can assume the other fire giants. And then Loki and the rest of Hell's own, um, so assuming his daughter Hel and her army, will all descend on the fields of Vigrid for battle. So on the Aesir's end, Heimdall sees them coming and blows the Galahorn to awaken the gods. The gods then hold an assembly, and Odin goes to Mimir's well for counsel. Odin and the Einarhar then dress for war. And David, I see and, you have a note here. Yeah, the uh, just you know, sort of uh, interpret just all the images you just described, right? You described the, the setup, and I don't think I talked too much about just what are all the significant images in there. So one that that, as you mentioned, uh, the wolf is a... Uh, 
Yeah. That, that word Hrotvitnir stuck in my head from our previous ones. And I couldn't remember what it meant exactly, but that was the famous wolf and talking about whether, well, is the famous wolf Fenrir or is it Loki himself is kind of a whole, it's unclear because it's poetry mm-hmm. essentially, at least to me, it's unclear, but, um, that and to break down Hattie Hrotvitsen, what does that word mean exactly? It kind of break down the old Icelandic, um, old Norse. That one when I was Google searching, as part of how I do it is I just take an old Norse word, I throw it in Google, and it comes out with some Icelandic, and I'm like, eh, good enough. But yeah. that hrotti means masculine or kind of coarse and rude, that kind of a, a coarse manliness. Or it can be used poetically to mean a sword. So there's something manly about a sword, right? And we keep seeing this image of, you know, as it mentioned, revelations, Jesus Christ and a sword coming out his mouth. We got Surtur with a giant flaming sword. We also have Fenrir with the flames coming out his eyes, just like Christ in revelations. So there's something, something there, whatever those images mean. Right. And then as I was Google searching, as I was remembering that word, uh, the famous wolf that Hattie means hate. And then Hrotvitsun means the sun. It's, it's a little unclear to me as I'm trying to sort it out. If it's the son of the famous wolf, or it might even be like the son of man. Cause if Hiroti just means manliness, right? Man then Hroti's son is the son of man, right? That there's something, if I was better with languages, I could kind of differentiate between all these things. But I think the best way to probably say it is he's the bane of the son of man, right? That this wolf is the bane of all humans, kind of, right? Yeah. Um, so interesting, fun things to and break down the language. Jesus Christ is uh, Jesus Christ is like considered the son of man, isn't he? Or am I right. way off there? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly why I'm making all these connections. Exactly, Sean. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and that somehow that's the wolf. Why is the wolf kind of the son of man? That, that doesn't seem right. But there's a a proverb or a saying that I like. It, it comes from an old uh, Latin play. It's a homo homini lupus, which means that man is wolf to man, which basically means that the greatest predator we have to fear is other human beings, right? What are, should you actually be afraid of wolves or you should be afraid of the wolf inside of a person that you, you never know if you can trust them, right? That, that's one way to look at humanity, right? That you can never trust anybody you have no idea what they're up to, right? Sure. Um, one view of humanity, but then there was another quote, and I can't—I couldn't find a source on it. I feel like I was reading Carl Jung, but he was quoting some kind of old. Uh, it's, but it's a very stoic idea that yeah, when man is most himself, he is to be trusted. So, the, the reason I like combining these quotes is that often man is wolf to man, but that's when man is not most man, right? Mm-hmm. If you actually understand yourself, if you're in touch with your soul then you're a person to be trusted. But uh, many people are not. They're quite disconnected from yeah. all of that. So that's why I'm thinking all the wolf languages. That's what it means to me, certainly. Um, I think a useful way to... T- and it goes back to very ancient times. What are people afraid of? Wolves are one of the scarier things to be afraid of. If you're out in a tent and a pack of wolves surrounds you, you, you might be in trouble, even if you have a sword or a spear, right? Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that one, Sean, just as I'm talking about the well, wolf I, image? Like- well, I guess like, you know, and I see you have a couple notes here, but like, I'm wondering if in this, in this myth, like we all know of Fenrir, but like with a uh, Hati and skull, like what, like, why are they chasing the sun? And if like, they are supposed to represent like the wolves inside of us, what is like human humans trying to like blot out the sun to where everybody dies? Like, what does that signify? And so like, if, I'm wondering if it's just like, if, if it's like some, uh, has like some hidden meeting where like maybe humans, naturally are self-sabotaging without like realizing yeah. it or something like we and, always and do that things that in, are for our best interests yeah that ahead. brings in loki and the trickster right yeah and that that if the wolf eats your light then you become a wolf right i think that's 
completely fits my, uh, you know, combination of those two quotes there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At, at least that's what I think, you know, Ragnar part of, part of Ragnarok is talking about. Certainly here, we're here in the setup. Right. And I think when we did that intro, right, we're like, there's so many things going on here, right? Even just this setup, we break Ragnarok into three parts. There is a lot to break down. The sword image, I think I talked before about, you know, a, what is a, a sword or even like Thor's hammer and all these things represent, right? And I talk about the the phallus imagery, but we're, we're not just talking about penises to be crude. It's this idea of really, uh, that that actually then represents like creative energy or something, as they talk about what is that actually supposed to represent mythologically. And that doesn't just mean creating babies, right? But also creating creative ideas, right? And things like that. And that a sword kind of like, it clarifies, it cuts, you know, sort of a, I'm trying to think what's the saying, you know, it cuts through all the deception, right? It cuts through the fat, gets to the, the meat of the problem kind of, right? Something like that. Our yeah. ways to uh, think what is, why do we have this, this sword is very important, right? Whether it's a, uh, whether it's Freyr or Surtur, the fire uh, giant, right? This, the sword keeps showing up, right? And they keep really emphasizing that. And, and then there's the serpent, right? Jormungandr, which again is a phallus, right? But also that the serpent eating its tail, the serpent that wraps around the entire world is the Ouroboros. I think only once or twice did I mention that image is the yeah. thing that will show up in some real, real ancient stuff, you know, before, uh, before the year 100, um, in, in, you know, going into BC, that idea of the Ouroboros. And it's a few Jungian things really emphasize that, that it's masculine and feminine, right? It's a, it's a long snake, but now also it's looped into a circle is what makes it kind of feminine. It's actually that idea of God being before God is separated into the, the God and the goddess, the, the father and the mother. It's just the unity um, kind of idea. So why is Jormungandr here? Why is Thor wrestling with it? Right. These are all <laughs> very interesting <laughs> questions if that's what it means. Right. Sure. Um, and then also the serpent in the Bible, right. With Adam and Eve and the snake that tells you to eat the apple that then makes you conscious of the difference between good and bad, right. That the serpent is the trickster. So the serpent's kind of like Loki. Um, I think it's fairly commonplace in Christianity to say that the serpent is Satan, right. That Satan, mm-hmm. Oh, he tricked you, right. God said you could have had a perfect life and the serpent wanted to, you know, make you sin. But the Gnostic Christians had a different way to look at that story. They said that the serpent was Christ and that Christ opened your eyes up to, you know, that you were following a blind God and you were being kept unconscious and, and now you're free. And that's, that makes the serpent quite a good guy. Right. And then is it still Loki? Right. So this is getting much worse than me saying everybody's Loki and everybody's uh, uh, Odin. Right. I'm (laughs) saying the serpent is both Satan and Christ at the same time. Right. And Loki. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I feel like if, like, if you look at the Bible and like, let's say the universe was created by like an all good, all powerful God, um, at some point, like the, the serpent being there was meant to happen. Like, why would God put this serpent there, you know, to like, kind of like cause some chaos and like, what is a very static world like the garden of Eden. And so like, if you take a look at that serpent and then you apply it to maybe not like Jormungandr, but like Loki, you know, I think Loki we've discussed multiple times how he is an agent of fate, but he is like an agent of chaos. And by chaos, I mean anything that isn't just like this staticness um, in the world. And like, he likes to, he like kind of just likes to play that, like watch, watch the world, like have some fun by like bringing chaos into the world type of thing. Um, So I guess that would make sense. And like, ultimately in this story, like it kind of like prompts Ragnarok with everything he's done. So that uh, it's the strange thing, you know, as we even talked a little bit on the, uh, the fireside chat, but how, you know, how our between two Ravens fits into the walled garden. Cause they're sort of a, you know, a philosophical society, especially interested though, in that question of like, what is truth? What is the divine? And something you were saying in there, like, you know, well, it seems like if, if God created everything, he must've put the serpent there. 
But it's like, but then God doesn't like that the serpent's there. And so did God put it there? Or did God not put it there? Well, when you, you know, if you're allowed to consider all possibilities, then sort of a, a pantheism, right? Where there's a, a unity God, but then it's broken down into these multiple gods, right? And that this one, the one doesn't know what the other one's doing, right? <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's a way to think about it because otherwise it's just like, eh, it's just a contradiction and it's too confusing and let's not think about it too much. Or you can think about it a lot in you know, exploring Norse mythology, right? So. Well, yeah. And like, I think if you do think about it a lot, right? Like if you think about Christianity, like where Christians like have a worldview that there's a force of good and a force of evil, when I think like it's like a, a more pragmatic way to look at it is say, or I guess when in reality, like everything is gray type of thing. Like some people may be more good or more evil, yeah. but like, you know, to say like, this is perfect. This is, th- this is what we should all strive for. And like the only thing that's ho- stopping us from getting there is this like force of evil is just like kind of like a flawed way to look at everything. That the, um, uh, the, the, the Greek philosophy really looks at that question a lot. It's kind of the difference between stoicism and things that come more from Plato would be that question, right? At the core, what is the nature of a human being, right? At the core, is it this wolf, this animal, and that we're having to use our intellect and religion to keep that all locked down, right? Keep that wolf locked away or else, you know, human's nature is to just go destroy everything, right? Yeah. Or is our nature actually good? And we're just a little confused. We're a little blind. We're a little not seeing things clearly. And then when we see it clearly, our nature is to very easily become good, right? That, so do you have both good and bad in there or it's just good and sometimes good is confused yet you know you're blindfolded right yeah um, that yeah these are the questions that you know i don't think anyone ever answered it's just how you, how you want to look at the world it's it's maybe works better when you approach a person and assume there's something good in them rather than there's a wolf you need to be afraid of right i think that is makes things work better <laughs> yeah then again if you need to always protect yourself from a bunch of wolves maybe you should always suspect the worst right so yeah, David, I, I, f- I feel like we uh, we typically do the, philo- the philosophical stuff at the end of the episodes, but I guess we added, we threw something in here at the beginning. Most of it here, yeah, it's just to kind of, it's it's the setup. It's things I, I really just didn't prepare, or uh, Ragnarok <laughs> part one, I would say. Yeah. And, uh, but so it is to set up now the, you know, this 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 week's episode that, at least the, right, the way David sees it, right, is the battle is being prepared. All these underworld unconscious forces are gathering, the giants, the dead. And then they're against the king of the gods, which to me is representing structure and order and all the ancestors of the warriors, right? So you have the king, the warrior archetypes, right? Against all the unconscious forces. And now and now they're going to meet. So now I'll throw it back to Sean. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get on to the battle. Um, so similar to last week, uh, we're going to be the main source of the battle of Ragnarok comes from uh, Gilfaganin from the Proseta. And we... Both, the, both, I guess, the lead up to it, which we discussed um, in episode one and this episode are going to be taking place primarily in chapter 51, which details, uh, as I mentioned, like the lead up to the battle and then the battle itself. So the Aesir advanced to battle with Odin leading them. He is wearing a gold helmet and a magnificent coat of mail. He is carrying his spear Gungnir, and he will face off against the wolf Fenrir. Thor is by his side. However, he is unable to help Odin in this fight as he has his own hands full with Jormungandr, the Midgard servant. And we know that Thor and Jormungandr have like a have a rivalry between them and like Thor has like Thor's fishing trip was so he could ultimately catch Jormungandr which he failed. So Frey is there as well. Um, and he is going to face off with the fire giant Surtur, the um Surtur from Muspel. And you also find out here that Freyr will perish in this fight against Surtur. Because he lacks his sword, 
And this is the very sword that he gave to his servant, Skirner, who, as we discussed a couple months ago, he gave his uh, sword to Skirner for his services in forcing Gerder to marry Freyr. So Freyr was the lover. He wanted to marry Gerder, and Skirner orchestrated this um, this marriage by pretty much force, by threats. And so ultimately, Skirner gets the sword, and Frey does not have this sword in his fight against Surtur. So the Hound Garm is also going to break free, and will fight against the one-handed god Tyr, and they will be each other's deaths. And so an interesting note here, David, is because I know we've discussed whether or not Garm and Manor Garm um, may actually be Fenrir, but I guess in this story, for this story, Garm is not Fenrir. And it's also weird that the story would have set up this showdown with Garm and Tyr, because you would think that Fenrir and Tyr would have this rivalry because Fenrir right. bit Tyr's hand off. And there's a couple of just yeah, ways you just sort of just taking the story, right? One is that Fenrir is probably stronger. So that Odin has both hands, he's a little stronger to try to take on Fenrir. But also the idea that, you know, Tyr throughout we don't get a lot of stories on Tyr. They say Tyr was a much older god. He was really represented in, you know, the going before the year 900 kind of pantheon, probably going much further back, actually, even like before year 100. Tyr might have been a bigger deal maybe than Odin at some point in history, right? So that idea that Tyr is the king, Tyr's also kind of the warrior, and he needs to fight the wolf. There's probably like mm-hmm. lots of poems and things that said Tyr needs to fight the wolf. Yet also the stories evolved where, well, Odin's the king, so Odin needs to fight the wolf, right? And and Thor's the warrior, so, you know, yeah. Thor needs to fight the wolf also. But no, Thor needs to fight the serpent, right? And yeah, so it's... Um, you know, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think how often Garm was really discussed before this, or is he just kind of a plot device? Because Tyr's got to be fighting the wolf. He's got to be fighting somebody. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and and uh, there, I did read the. And by the way, like my copy of the Prosetta that I read is uh, translated by Jesse Bayek. And in this in this uh, translation, the end has like a bunch of notes. And I, I went back and read it because there was a note here when uh, Garm was mentioned, and it says. It says that Garm is the wolf that is found in Boulder's Drama, which is what we discussed from the Poetic Edda. And it, it mentions in that note that the Garm could be Fenrir. However, literally in the story, a couple of paragraphs before it, it mentions Fenrir being there and fighting um, Odin and Garm fighting Tyr. So it's just another inconsistency in the myths. Um, but in this story, they are different wolves, but maybe in like a Boulder's Drama, Garm is supposed to be Fenrir or something like that. Yeah, and that they could just, you know, mix up names or just the way like Odin has so many different names, right? And things like that. But that, no, yeah, because Balder got killed by Loki. How was Garm yeah. involved in that story? Can you remember? I think he was just uh, present at, uh, in like the gate, like by the gates of hell. Yeah, that's right. When they and go down, we talked about how, yeah, yeah, we talked about how it may be Fenrir, like, didn't like Fenrir's there with his sister, Hell. But I, I'm pretty sure Garm was there, uh, yeah. At in the gates of like by the gates of hell, and it's like also I think it, when we discussed this um, in part one of Ragnarok, when I mentioned Hati Hradvitsen and Skull, I think there's some source if it's not in Gilfagani that mentions that like they have some rel- relation to Garm, but I could be wrong. Yeah, the part that there needs to kind of be some hounds of hell, right? Because that's a very important image, and then yeah. that Fenrir isn't quite that hound of hell, but he's very close to a hound of hell, right? So yeah, yeah but I have a different name for him. Yes. So anyway, um, Tyr died um, fighting Garm. Freyr has died fighting Surtur. And then you find out here that Thor kills the Midgard serpent Jormungandr. Yay! However, after this, he will step but just nine steps and then fall dead himself by poison that Jormungandr spit out at him. 
and it mentions in this translation, he will fall to the earth dead. And so I, I, I am not sure if the planes of Vigrid are actually taking place on Midgard, or like, I'm not sure if they take, if they, that is located on Midgard, but it does mention that he will fall to the earth dead. And with his mother being the earth, like, I'm wondering if there's like some symbolism, like he's falling back to his mother or like maybe back home or something like that. Oh yeah. But I, I really like that you found that, uh, yeah, kind of poetic, poetic meaning of him falling to the earth. Right. Cause obviously he just felt he was dead or, he, you know, died from poison and he falls on his face. Right. But, but that he returns to the earth, right. Or returns to the mother goes back to that. I was describing these, you know, the, the serpent and the dragon or the, the serpent Jormungandr is kind of like a dragon. And whether that's representing masculine or feminine or some kind of combination of both. Uh, but him coming back to the earth is kind of like coming back to the, the mother. So there's something, something with that. I'm glad you caught it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. So then Fenrir swallows Odin and kills him. So you see here, like all of the main gods are just dying. However, Odin's son Vidar will then avenge his father and stride forth and slam his feet into the bottom part of Fenrir's jaw. He then takes his hand and takes the upper part of Fenrir's mouth and rips his mouth apart, killing him. So here, another spawn or spawn of Loki, the 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 creatures of Ragnarok gets killed, although the Allfather Odin also dies. And it mentions here what's what's interesting in Gilfogany. It mentioned like the fight between like uh, Tyr and Garm, and then you'll see like another fight, like another brief mention between Hemdal and Loki. They're like one sentence apiece, but after Vidar kills Fenrir, it, it like kind of gives a couple sentences on like some significance of Vidar's shoes. And it says, he wears on that foot the shoes that have been assembled through the ages by collecting the Ezra pieces that people cut away from the toes and heels when fashioning their shoes. Thus, who want to help the Aesir should throw those extra pieces away. And I don't even know what Ezra means. <laughs> it's like, so I'm not it's sure like what kind of shoes shoe. were worn back then, but yeah, go it's ahead. Shoe manufacturing. Yeah. There's something, because I thought you meant the extra pieces, but I think it is something very technical, right? About like something you yeah. cut out when you're, when you take a piece of leather and you're trying to turn it into a three dimensional shoe, right? There's something you got to cut out there that, uh, yeah. as you said, right, that they spent a lot of time dwelling on this. And just right now, as we're talking about, it, it reminds me of when we played Dungeons and Dragons, if somebody rolls a 20, it's like, well, now you got to come up with a fatality. How are you going to kill this enemy in a very creative, you, know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't just stab them and they die, right? You got to do something, you know, you spin around and you chop their head off, right? Or, you, you know, bounce the arrow off the wall and it goes through their eye or something, right? You got to come up with a dramatic thing of, oh, I put, I put my foot on the bottom of their jaw and I put the sword up through the top of their mouth. And, you know, it's pretty it's, badass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Vidar rolled a 20 in this story. Right. But, um, yeah, that's exactly. And then the, the shoe, it's got to mean something, right? And it's the weirdest thing to be like, and he's got one giant shoe, right? It, to me, it sounds like it's a weird thing that shows up in dreams. So, you know, whatever kind of, you know, poet that made this probably had that image show up to him and he doesn't know why, but it needs to be there for some reason, right? And I've actually been having a lot of dreams about the theme of shoes or boots. And I'm not going to go into all of that, but uh, I'll leave that to the viewers to... Notice if you have any dreams about shoes and then figure out what they, what it maybe means to, to have your shoe or not have your shoe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure. Um, and so really quick on, uh, and with Vidar, cause he showed up a couple times. He, he was, he was present during the, uh, Aegir's feast in Locusena and he was the one who Odin told to pull up a chair for Loki when Loki was like, well, I'm your blood brother. You promised never to drink without me. And Odin let him stay. Vidar was the one that pulled up his chair. Vidar didn't say anything. Um, his mother, 
grid, I want to say. Yeah, his mother um, actually showed up in the story that we discussed when Thor traveled to Garrod's court, and it mentions that uh, his she was the mother of Vidar, so she was off like yeah. she was like a consort of Odin, and that's how Vidar and Thor are uh, half brothers. Um, and then chapter 29 of Gilfaganine, and I think I mentioned um, on my episode on Gilfaganine, which kind of functions as like a world builder. If you take it from beginning to end, it actually discusses the beginning. Um, obviously, right now we're discussing Ragnarok, which is the end, but many chapters are like brief sentences on different gods and like who they are in, in the mythology. And so chapter 29 is Vidar, and the entire thing is just says one is called Vidar, one being one of the gods. He is the silent god. He has a thick shoe, which we just discovered, and is nearly as strong as Thor. The gods rely on him in all difficulties. And so it mentions that he's the silent. He doesn't actually say anything in any of the sources, but he obviously plays a huge part of it. And the interesting is, yeah, you reflect back on where where he was during uh, Locusena and different things. That he starts out as just the child, right? And he's not the favored son. He's kind of like the second secondary. But now he's really becoming the warrior, right? And this scene is where now he's um, showing up, right? The, the sort of, or has always outshined him, but well, now Thor's dead and now he gets to step up. So kind of that hero's journey, he's going from being a boy to now actually a warrior, things like that. Yeah, not for sure. So then Loki will battle Hemdal and they will also be each other's deaths. So now Loki and Hemdal are also dead. And, and this really speaks to me of why, even if the authors didn't know what they were doing, there was something, this goes like Carl Jung's theory of the collective unconscious. There was a reason why it had to be Loki and Hemdal, right? So it goes back, there must be a reason why it needed to be Thor paired up with the serpent, things like that. That at least in my, you know, my theory, I'm creating a Norse psychology, basically, that, that Loki is self-deception. And something we said about Heimdall way back, I made a joke that Heimdall is like your executive functioning, your uh, focused attention, your mindfulness, if it was a region in your brain, right? That Heimdall, he yeah. hears all and he sees all, right? Or he especially hears all. That that is the solution to self-deception, right? The only thing that can kill Loki is Heimdall. And and then also Heimdall dies, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, self-deception probably destroys your focused attention too, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, if we if we like kind of take note here of all the um, major players in this battle, Surtur did not die. We do know that Fenrir died, uh, Gondor died, Thor, Odin, Freyr, Loki, Hemdal, Tyr, they all died. So Surtur's still there. And uh, one thing I, I mentioned, um, the armies of Hell are supposedly here at this battle. However, it doesn't say that Loki's daughter Hell is present. Um, but anyway, Surtur's still there. He survived. And it says that Surtur will then throw fire over the earth and burn the whole world. And that is right. where the chapter ends. And David, I see you have a note here too. Yeah. And that, and that sounds like a bad thing, right? It would seem like, oh, and then the world's done. And that's and that's where it ends. And uh, all of humanity is killed, right? But if, if we're taking it as the psychological meaning, that, that everything that has to be burned away for rebirth, right? And that's that question of, yeah, is this just, is Ragnarok the end or is it a pattern of rebirth? Because that's very much... You know, again, I don't think we have as much proof of what was the uh, the old Norse worldview, but for the Stoics, it very much is. It's a it's a primal fire that creates the universe, and then it all um, collapses on itself just to be created all over again. And that it's all about this idea of primal fire that that's sort of what the uh, the universe is made of, right? So, yeah, and it's also like be- I mean, it kind of a you know, and it's like I, one thing that I think of when I think of Ragnarok, and we know that Odin is like been deathly afraid of this day forever. And so, like, we all, it, like, I've always, like, drew attention to the fact that Ragnarok is, like, our all, 
like all of our mortality. Like we know that we're going to die. At least like, you know, right now we may come to technology to where we can prolong our lives indefinitely, but like, we all know that day is coming. Right. And it's like, you know, maybe it's not as bad as we're making it out to be. Like it's, it's very much an unknown experience. Like, unless it's, well, unless it's exactly like it was before we were born, but like, like after we die, we're not going to be able to say, wow, this sucks. Right. And so like, I'm just like wondering, like if we're getting back to like, if our bodies just kind of like decompose and like they become part of the universe again, like that's, is that really a bad thing? And uh, like, just, there's, that's just me like kind of piggybacking off like what you said, but I don't know. Oh yeah. That I think that's somewhat, yeah. What the, a lot of the myths uh, as we saw, especially some of the early ones with Odin, I think it was probably Volspa maybe. And also uh, Ahavamal. Yeah. 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 I think that also addresses a little bit of how do you, how do you face death? Right. That that's, that's what this is about too right yeah yeah no definitely and like i feel like i don't know like i feel like not to like maybe this maybe this is missing the mark or like this is better suited for like another episode but like if we're all gonna die like us worrying about that day is not doing us any favors you know and And even even thor love and thunder is really talking about death and how do you how do you face death right and that's uh yeah I, I, i really actually like the the ending in a few moments throughout that movie yeah cool well in that case we'll uh, we'll go ahead and move on i had some other notes here and then we can uh talk a little bit further into that so um i i did uh write down a few stand well i guess first of all in gilfaganine snorri sterlison made a point to like include a lot of quotes from the poem voluspa which he calls Sibyl's prophecy and so he actually includes them within gilfaganine and that's like also one of the ways that like it's obvious that the poetic edda poems were were written down much before or like you know before i guess before the prosetta was even though the actual poetic edda was compiled like 50 years later but anyway in volaspa where odin is talking to the dead cirrus it has a few chapter or a few stanzas that detail ragnarok so i'll start with the stanza 52 and this is going to be jackson crawford's translation then comes the second sorrow of frigg when odin goes to fight the wolf and then later in the stanza, it says, then Odin, Frigg's husband, will fall to Fenrir. And so, like, the first sorrow, sorrow for, of Frigg's is obviously when she lost her son, Balder. So, stanza 53 says, then comes the great son of Odin, Vithar, to fight, to avenge his father on the wolf. He shoved his sword into the mouth of Fenrir all the way to the heart. Thus, Odin is avenged. And you'll see here the, uh, the way that Vidar killed Fenrir in the poetic Edda poem Voluspa is a little bit different. He just get, kind of gets stabbed through the mouth into the heart. And in Gilfragenin, the quote from Voluspa mentions that Fenrir is Friedrung's son, which is very interesting because Fenrir is obviously the son of Loki. Um, and it's like, I really don't know who this character Friedrund is. But David, no. I see you have a note here. Yeah, I mean, it's a little similar to that... Uh... That, that HV, you know, the Hrotvir, like we were talking about earlier, but it's not the same Vedrung. Yeah. So whether it's another name for Loki, right? Or is the wolf kind of something else too, right? Um, yeah, definitely. What was the mother's name? I can't remember now. Uh, Angerbotha? Yeah, Angerbotha. Yeah. But then, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't seem similar, right? I think it goes back. There's some things clearly, you know, we see the different versions, whether they're in, there's the Volspa that we have in the Poetic Edda. There's the one Snorri was reading. And, you know, kind of and all these different sources or ways that we know there were sources that there's things that all the mythology, all the poets knew were true, right? Like that, who, you know, who's uh, the son of who and who kills who, 
but then any individual version you're reading may not capture it exactly, right? There's parts that, that wasn't universally agreed upon, right? So there's those parts that, you know, everyone agreed on and those parts that, well, this might just be what this guy, because he tried to put the pieces together. You know, this is what he wrote down that day. No. And then I, something I'd written a little bit, I referred to it earlier, you know, that importance of the sword. And as we talked a lot in the episode about Freyr and uh, Skirner, that, uh, that idea of you know, Freyr being the lover archetype, but what's the healthy lover archetype, right? That, that Freyr we see as sort of like, you know, a shadow figure. He, he doesn't know how to be a lover. He doesn't even know how to go, you know, propose to a woman, right? He's just, yeah. let me hire a manservant to do it, right? But the lover archetype is also the child archetype is another way to say it. It's sort of like the divine child, right? That, that goes, Christ kind of has all these different figures. He's, well, more he's the, the divine child, right? He's not the father, He's the, he's the son, right? And then there's other ways to describe the, the mythology. One is these sort of four archetypes that all balance, but the other one would be that it's kind of a journey, right? You start as a child, you become a warrior, then you have the wisdom to be a father, then you become the wise old man, right? And we see Odin a little bit on that journey. Some places where Odin's a little bit of a warrior, but then quickly he becomes the the all father. And then he's also the wise old man. And he's kind of sneaking around doing these, these odd uh, trickster things too. Mm. So that, you know, that Freyr is basically a man-child, that Vithar is the child who now becomes the warrior, kind of as I was referring to earlier. And we don't know much about how he does that, right? He never speaks. He doesn't explain himself, right? He's just, one day he shows up and he's doing it. So, you know, it's kind of great to see, right? But we know what not to do. We know what Freyr did, you know, giving away the sword to the trickster. As I said, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't Loki there. It was um, Skirner. But the yeah. Skirner was very much this kind of very dark magician trickster figure. Yeah. Don't give him the sword. And as I, I wrote these things and then I went and watched uh, Love and Thunder and I'm like, all these things show up, right? From the Thor gets to become the father now. And even the, the stone man is like, Thor's going to be a great dad one day, right? And then there's this dark fig shadow guy and he gets the sword and you don't want him to, you especially don't want him to have that, uh, that ax, the, the thing that's like uh, Mjolnir, but it's an ax, right? You don't Stormbreaker, want him to have that. Yeah. Yeah. Stormbreaker. Don't give him that, right? That's sort of uh, very consistent, you know, well done in the movie, I thought. But, yeah. yeah, definitely. So anyway, stanza 54 of Allspa, it says, Then Thor comes, Earth's son, Odin's son, to fight the Midgard serpent. The protector of Midgard will kill that serpent in his rage, but all humankind will die out of the world after Thor falls, after only nine steps, struck down by the venom of the honorless serpent. So the entire race of men also dies um, at this point. Yeah, the Norse is saying that it's really like, that all humanity die. Oh, I wanted to know what the word is. Yeah. Cause in your translation, it says all humankind will die out, but I'm sure in older translations, they probably said mankind. Right. And uh, that Jackson Crawford is trying to be a little more gender inclusive when he says humankind. Do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, he, he changed, right. he like changes stuff all the yeah. time to make it like more readable for us. And, and it's, and it's great to be right. Inclusive of the genders, but it's that question, as I said before, right. If, if it's men, men poets writing these things, are they talking about a masculine psychology? It might be a little different from feminine psychology, right? Women would write these poems differently, or they'd write a different kind of mythology, I imagine, right? Because as I'm reading Robert Moore, and now I read the book by Robert Bly, who's a poet who uh, talks a lot about these kind of archetypal ideas and what is true masculinity, like a healthy masculinity, right? Rather than uh, patriarchy and uh, I think I talked about this before, like toxic masculinity, but the other word could be yeah. just like uh, misogyny and things like that, right? But that masculinity dies when the warrior dies in society. When our image of what a warrior is dies, then we don't actually know what full masculinity is anymore. That's really the thing Robert Bly says, right? So that maybe that's a little bit of what they're saying here, right? When 
um, the serpent and Thor kill each other. Now we don't know what it is to be a warrior anymore, right? When the Vikings are kind of told they're supposed to be civilized and Christian and not be warriors. Um, you know, the warriors can do a lot of harm and, you know, chaos and damage and, you know, harm, but there's something important they're doing too that gets lost. So I think that's, uh, again, how I take this and some, some authors would take this. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's funny because like today, um, like in this culture, there's like a huge like there's a huge volume of people that think that masculinity is like under attack. Like right. you'll see politicians like uh, just complain about this. And like, I, I really don't yeah. think that's um, true. I just think like masculinity has evolved based on the time. Cause we don't need to be warriors for the most part. Right. Like we don't need to. Well, yeah. And that's the idea. Does the, does the human spirit need some part of this warrior spirit? So we don't exactly need people out in the streets hitting each other with clubs. That's maybe not preferable, right? But it's the idea, is it two sides of the same coin, right? That's the whole idea of the shadow. It's the ugly thing we don't like to see, right? Which would be like the domestic violence abuser, right? Yeah. But then, and so we're like, let's, let's, you know, put that underground. Let's bury that. Let's not have any of that in our society, right? But then did we also bury, and if we buried the warrior with that, so we wanted to get rid of that, but if we buried the warrior with that, and there's something good about the warrior, that's the part that stands up when there's a thing that's not right, right? Something that's harmful, you know, like, uh, you know, a guy like being, you know, being awful to a woman, a, a waitress in a restaurant, right? And no one's going to stand up and say anything to him. Everyone just sits there because their warrior is underground and they're not mm-hmm. allowed to have their warrior. So this guy gets to be an awful, you know, an asshole to everybody in the restaurant and everybody else is just sitting there, right? Rather, some guy could come up and slap him in the face and drag him out in the street and they get in a fist fight and, then maybe he'd stop doing that to the waitresses, right? But yeah. no one is going to do that because we killed the warrior, right? So that's, do we want that back exactly? You know, we need to do something with the warrior spirit, but maybe not fist fights in the street or maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I just can't wait till somebody like misinterprets our message and goes onto like Twitter or something and says, between two ravens says, mask agrees that masculinity is under attack by the government or something like that. yeah. No, if they said that, I'll uh, have to write a yeah, really long blog post and try not to get myself in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, and anyway, the last little um, blurb here is from Vathruthnismal, um, which is from the Poetic Edda. And I think in a couple of the earlier episodes, I mentioned this poem. It's um, Odin's Contest with the Riddle Weaver, where they had just like this like uh, this little game of wits. And um, you use that poem to like understand more about the universe. So like in Santa 18... It says the valley is named Vigrith, where Surt will lead the final battle against the gods. It is 100 miles long on each side. That's why this valley is chosen and chosen for the battle. Let's see. I think I already talked a bit about, yeah, what the fire giant kind of represents and that idea of rebirth, that the idea of, you know, this metaphor of it's a fire giant. So it sounds like something demonic from hell coming out, a fire giant out of the earth, and it's going to burn all of humanity, right? But that idea, what else does fire and heat and passion kind of represent, right? So it's fire and heat. It's also anger, but it's also love, right? And from some other, you know, Chinese medicine kind of systems, you could, the chi is the life force. It's very similar, I think, to that um, primal fire that's talked about in Stoicism. And that the the enemy of order, so the, the gods are order and structure and things like that, right? That's, that's the father and that's all these things in Stoicism. The enemy of that is passion and chaos. The Stoics are very much like, don't get controlled by your passions. You need to keep them under control. You need to notice them, that they're a false, a false impression about the world. But if you've locked up too much of that heat and that passion, then is it Loki that needs to trick you into finding it again, right? So as, you know, as, as, we're, as I'm talking about that thing, as you're saying, right, it's very controversial, is 
is masculinity under attack. But it goes back, right? If men are just passive and they're like, I'm not allowed to be, you know, I'm too afraid of being aggressive. So I'm not even, I got no passion at all, right? Yeah. I don't want anyone to misperceive my passion as aggression, right? So I'll just be very calm and passive. And that's maybe not good, right? So I, I don't know if it's exactly all about masculinity, but it's certainly that, you know, a fear of emotions, right? You're not allowed to have, you're not allowed to have your anger, right? That idea of like, like if so there's a guy like doing primal, something wrong, your primal urges or something. Restaurant. Wait, say that again. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so that some of them are the part of that primal urge is why that guy is being so awful to everybody in the restaurant. Cause I'm saying he's harassing the waitresses. Right. But it's also anger that would tell you what he's doing is wrong and it needs to stop. <clears throat> right. So if you're afraid of having anger, you're not going to get in his face. Right. And, and tell him he needs to stop. So it's that part that is the thing I struggle with as I try to understand stoicism. What are you supposed to do with emotions, right? How much is that allowed? Is it really supposed to be they're all irrational and nonsensical? And and that's the thing in actually the wider talk, you know, they're like, well, that's just a misinterpretation of stoicism, right? But a lot of stoicism does say, you know, be involved in life, care about other people, but don't allow these, these type of emotions that are, you know, uh, a misperception that are, they call it a, a pathé or pathological that I think there's something in this myth as well about that. Like you need to get a little bit fiery sometimes. Yeah. You're really not living your life if you don't. Right. But too much of that is very <laughs> harmful and scares everybody and hurts people. Right. So yeah, that's a balance. Right. Yeah. And um, I wonder if there's like any, uh, like if that's kind of like what Vidar did, right. Like yeah. he, like his, his impulse was to like avenge his father and like he let his like primal urges take hold of him and he was able to kill this wolf of Ragnarok. So right. But uh, yeah, so anyway, David, that's that's what I had as far as um, chapter fifty-one of Gilfogany and the Battle of Ragnarok. And I see you have a few more notes here. A lot of them I on a, Thor: Love and Thunder. <laughs> I got a pile of I got a pile of notes on Thor: Love and Thunder, and I think maybe there's actually a, a separate episode. But um, yeah, as I've already said, a few things within here. I, I think they actually do a really good job, even in the things that are silly. So the movie starts out, and it is so silly, it is so ridiculous. I'll just yeah. mention the that beginning part where. Uh, I mean, it doesn't feel like a Thor movie. It's like a Guardians of the Galaxy thing, right? Which is already kind of tongue-in-cheek. You know, it's got the 80s music and they're just making kind of crude jokes all the time, right? So it's like, what would it be if Thor was part of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? And then he's like sitting, meditating under a world tree, right? Trying not to be angry. And they like tap him on the shoulder and it's like, hey, Thor, we need you now. So then he like tears off his monk's robe and he's got like a punk rock outfit on or something. And it's, <laughs> yeah. you know, just very, and then he goes and he's like, he's like, I'm going to destroy the, uh, the enemies and everyone's like, Oh, thank you for saving our city. And then the city collapses behind you because he smashed everything along the way. And it's like, yeah, Thor smash, right? That is what Thor does in the myths captured that perfectly in a uh, Marvel. Right. It was the thing I noticed is that in that scene, it's like, it feels like star Wars. I'm like, what is Thor doing in the star Wars universe? Cause there's all these weird space aliens. Right. And, but that is, uh, yeah, I, I won't give away the ending, but that, uh, yeah. you know, Thor in space, right. It's, it's a weird thing. It doesn't feel like conventional Norse mythology. But I think they did their homework or they understand the archetypes or something, right? That Yeah, they really find all yeah. these little things. Um, well, in, in a very weird way. And by the way, like when it comes to the next few episodes, like I think we, in Gilfogany, the next chapter deals with the rebirth of like the universe, like which uh, you kind of alluded to earlier. So we, I do, we definitely are going to do an episode on that. But like also we're going to go kind of down the line of gods and then like with their death in Ragnarok, talk a little bit about their story arc. And it's like, I know I, I, I really like the um kind of the story arc that we discussed with thor and it's really not unlike i mean it's it is unlike but it's also not unlike uh this his like story arc in the marvel universe he deals with a lot of shit that happens to him 
Andy's right. kind of looked at as this like blunt in- instrument who's like this like dumb like yeah. powerful thing like this powerful being but he kind of like overcomes that and he knows like when to be smart and when to be you know that blunt inter- instrument so like yeah. i think that's going to be something that we can discuss further in the episode yeah. with thor but and there, and maybe one other piece that kind of ties it into the uh the theme here is we're talking about kind of like you know the the death of all humanity and then rebirth you know, it's thor love and thunder and at first i thought i'm like oh this is silly they're trying to make a romance movie out of thor right but which is there's a little bit of that in there but not that much actually but but the idea that to really under that, that Thor gains an understanding of grief and death in the movie, which goes back. That's the thing Odin is kind of trying to figure out. You know, he can't let go of Balder, right? He can't let go of this is what fate is going to be. But as Thor gains an understanding of grief and death, that's how he actually gains an understanding of love, right? That it's the love that also involves letting go. It's not just clinging and I need to have this and I can't let go of it. It's no, you have it. And then also you let go. And that's, you know, you don't, you don't want there to be death yet. You maybe that idea that you maybe can't properly understand love if you don't understand loss and letting go, right. Is very much pretty bluntly spoken out in the movie as well. And, yeah. uh, and probably quite true. Right. So yeah, I like, I think there's something very profound in the, uh, that Marvel movie as silly as it is. Yeah. yeah <laughs> they're, trying to sneak it they're trying to sneak it in there. So it gets into your unconscious without, without you noticing, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Anyways, John, I like that plan for our uh, our season. We'll have to yeah, we'll have to have a little production meeting maybe and and, uh, and line it out and uh, yeah, yeah, awesome, cool. Anything else, David? No, John, you have a great have a great uh great rest of your weekend. Have a great week and talk to you soon. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Between Two Ravens. If you've been enjoying our show, please write a five star review on iTunes to help spread our podcast to a wider audience. See the show notes below for links to follow us on social media. Our podcast is part of the Walled Garden Podcast Network. The Walled Garden Philosophical Society is committed to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever it might be found. Visit thewalledgarden.com to learn more. a smile that it seems to me reminds me of childhood memories where everything was as fresh as the bright blue sky now and then when I see her face she takes me away to that special place if I stayed too long I'd probably break down and cry Oh, sweet child of mine Oh, sweet love of mine